Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 226. Today's voyage took us to about two hours north of New York City. And the reason for that is that we were meeting with Lady Pink. Lady Pink is an artist, and she was a pioneer in the graffiti scene in New York City. She used to tag trains from about 1979 to 1985, and she started when she was still in high school. She gained a lot of notoriety doing that, and then she started to do commission work, commission murals, and she was featured in galleries. In 1982, she had a starring role in the movie Wild Style. You've probably heard of it, but if you haven't, it's about hip-hop, it's about graffiti, and it's about New York City. I think you can watch it on YouTube, actually, if you've never seen it. So maybe do that as, a, as an addendum to listening to this episode. She's got a world-famous style and tag, which you may have seen before. So now you can put a story and a voice to that tag. I'll link to her website in the notes. So whatever application you're using, you'll find a link to her website and to her Instagram account where she posts about her work and the current media she's doing, past media events and things like that. And she also has a shop. But her life has really been fascinating. And it was an honor and a pleasure to get to sit down with her, hear her story, and share her story with all of you. So again, go to the show notes to find out some additional information about Lady Pink. And also in the show notes, there is a link to my Patreon account. When you sign up for Patreon, you get all sorts of cool kickbacks like stickers and shirts and zines and things from around the world. I packed up a whole bunch of stuff last week and mailed out. And every once in a while, I'll slip in some stuff from the guests that have been on this podcast. So even today, Lady Pink hooked me up with some really cool magnets that feature her artwork. And so those are going to go into some random packages with zines and stickers and stuff like that. All right, folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lady Pink. Okay, cool. So, again, thank you for having us up here. This is a real pleasure. Uh, I feel like I always sort of intro with this, but I'm very fortunate that I get to meet interesting people all over the world and, and be in some very cool spaces. So I'm, I'm appreciative that uh, you're sharing your time today. Yeah, well, thanks for coming up. Cool, cool. So uh, you were born in Ecuador, right? Yes. Do you have many memories of, of your early childhood in Ecuador? Not too much, just vague recollections. Do you know if there's anything from early life that may have set you in the direction of the arts? Well, I was already an artist when I was very small. They tell me at the age of five, I was already doodling and drawing. And, ah. and um, I, I, even at that young age, I made a map of my mom's village, like an aerial view of all the buildings where everything was. My real father is an architectural engineer, and I have two brothers now who are architectural engineers in Ecuador. Ah, okay. So that came naturally. I think uh, to draw and 
and I was majoring in um, architecture in high school. So I was hoping to follow in my father's footsteps somehow. Again, oh. architecture and all of that came easy. Um, so that was like um, when we used to have magnet schools in New York. Um, no, it's the High School of Art and Design. It's not a, oh, it's not a magnet okay. school. It's a, it's a vocational school. Okay. They have those in some of the big cities. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so no, it's the High School of Art and Design. Okay. You don't happen to have that map that you drew still. No, absolutely not. Oh, that would be pretty cool though. <laughs> um, and when you were seven, you moved to Astoria. No, we moved to Brooklyn. We lived we lived in um, um Greenpoint area. Oh, okay. That's actually uh pretty close to where we are now in Williamsburg. Um you know, I didn't I wasn't around then, but I also I've only lived in the city for like the past 10 years. So a lot of it, you know, what I've seen and and even in the film that you were in, you know, a lot of uh, kind of like the bombed out era, the buildings that were looked like they were kind of dilapidated. Uh, what what was the the city like for you? What was your neighborhood like when you were growing up? Um, I lived in on North 10th Street in Bedford. Mm. So a couple, just two blocks south of, of, of McCarran Park. Yeah. So my I spent my summers as a kid in, in, in a McCarran pool. Uh-huh. Um, I was almost a lifeguard uh, as a kid. I was an assistant lifeguard at the pool for the summer. Um, my neighborhood was just boring, common, uh, working class Polish people. Mm. And I wasn't allowed to go to the south side past like... To you know, yeah. past First Street, South First, or I wasn't allowed to go down there because that was the heroin capital of the world, and it was pretty much the slums. So I wasn't allowed to go there. But as a kid, teenager, we did because like some of the cuter boys lived down there. Yeah. So. <laughs> a lot of like factories and warehouses down there too, right? Um, yeah, some. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, did you have? Uh, an early connection to hip hop or graffiti or anything like that? Uh, well, I started writing graffiti in 79. Right. But, but prior to that, I mean, um, did you, were, were you listening to like hip hop music? Did you have an early exposure to that? Hip hop didn't start till after 79 or okay. 79. So no, no, absolutely not. I was not listening to that for sure. Um, I did get to see a top to bottom hole car by Lee when I was 12, when my school made a trip to, up to the Bronx Zoo. Oh, so okay. we, we were on an elevated train. You get to see the, and, and I got to see that, like we got off that train and I looked back and I saw a top to bottom hole car and I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Didn't know who did it. Didn't know if it was legal or anything that didn't even occur to me. It was just a real nice artistic piece on the outside of a train. They have trees and illustrational stuff and letters and, you know, any top to bottom hole car is amazing by this, by its size and scale. Yeah. So at the age of 12, I had noticed it and that's about it. Okay. So you were about 15 when you started? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I had seen you say you started when you had a, a bit of like a broken heart. Yes. My very first boyfriend, he was arrested and sent to go live in Puerto Rico. Um, and I was heartbroken and, and tagged up his name for for a bit until uh, his friends started teaching me style and how letters are done correctly. So you have to practice a hell of a lot to get style correctly um, before you can bring it out to a wall or a train or everyone will laugh at you for being an amateur and a toy. Ah. So you have to practice a lot 
on your letters and fonts and in your name and stuff before you can put it out there. So and then each region is very specific on the style that they have. So I originally started off by doing um, um, Brooklyn lettering. But in 79, also, we moved to Queens, we moved to Astoria. So I had to um, eventually learn, you know, different styles. But um, how long did it take for you to develop your style? It's an ongoing process. It isn't like, oh, here I am. It's always an ongoing process. Okay. So, you know, you develop style continuously and then style changes by, by the decades. So you can, you can, uh, the same way that you can um, date someone by, by clothing or something like that by the decade, the same way you can date lettering by okay. decades and regions. You can tell, oh, that person's from France or that person's from Australia or they're from Brooklyn, New York from the 1970s. You can tell all of that by the by how they, um, you know, use their letters and how they shape their letters. The nuances are 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 incredible. The subtleties, and you have to be well schooled to know and, and understand and learn all that. So then, in New York, with different neighborhoods and different styles, were there like rivalries? Of course, there was rivalries. <laughs> oh my God, there was like over ten thousand kids doing it. There was rivalries. There's friendships. There's al. There's allies. There was a lot of politics going on. Mm. But the competition is what made graffiti better in New York City because the the trains ran from neighborhood to neighborhood. Folks at different ends of the lines would get to see other people's work. And they, of course, have to top it. So, you know, they see some group that they did something amazing and they, you know, the, the next weekend they have to do bigger and better and faster and more colorful. And then, sure, the rivalries, um, they became similar to the rivalries like in sports. Mm. So like before any any particular um, event, you would do a little trash talking. How you're going to burn them and roast them and take them down. You're going down, buddy. This weekend, <laughs> you're going down. So you're the same way you do in sports, but you do it with art, you yeah. do it with graffiti, with pieces and stuff like that. So, you know, it's like that, the rivalries and the competition. And I was very good at that, instigating guys and making them look, you know, slow and weak and, and un unmasculine, let's say, and, and challenging them to do something bigger and better. It's like, you can't. Oh, you can't. Look down at them. A girl laugh at them? Are you kidding? They're not having that. Girl laugh at you. Oh, that's the most embarrassing thing in the world. So, of course, they're going to try bigger and better. So, I, I'd love to instigate them and grab them by their machismo and just mess with them. <laughs> now, this obviously, like, for people are listening to this all over the world. So, there's a lot of people who are maybe, like, uninitiated to this art form and don't don't know much about graffiti. The idea with tagging up a train naturally would be that that train is going to be moving through neighborhoods, so more people are going to be able to see it. Yes, absolutely. Is is there an idea, too, with sort of access and space? Like I'm, I'm going to mention Wild Style in a little bit, but I think what it does really well is sort of show this kind of like class difference. To be able to purchase art from like very well-known artists it takes money to be able to sort of like move within the art gallery world. I think, especially at that time is a lot of people in suits and fancy clothes and stuff like that. But a train is in an area where like anybody can see it. Anybody can go up to it. Is, was there an idea at all about like, this is a, a, a space or a landscape that doesn't require access? It was a moving canvas for, mm. for the kids. 
you know, it rolled through neighborhoods so other people got to see it. Of course, kids have no access to getting folks to come see their artwork or any entrance store, or they didn't even call it artwork. Mm. We were painting for ourselves and each other and our peers. Um, Because very quickly, by the mid-70s, we had invented what's called like wild style. The -hmm. letters took on such extreme shapes that only the schooled can read them. And, you know, and, and they became more elaborate and, and crazy letters that regular folks couldn't even begin to read them. They were so abstract. And and again, you have to be very schooled to be able to read what says there. You know, uh, when you can, you can read it like this. Other people are looking at it like it's just geometric abstract shapes yeah. randomly thrown together in some attractive colors. Uh, they don't realize that they're letters at all and it says someone's name. So even by the mid-70s, we had left behind the regular folks and we were just painting for each other. And 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 so that we'd get, you know, fame and props from each other. And, you know, and that, that, that means a lot for kids. Um, it wasn't until it went above ground and money was being offered did people's motivations change. Mm. But initially we were just painting for each other to be cool, to be famous, to be down, to be hip, to be accepted in all kinds of neighborhoods so that you can walk with your head up like your king or queen and doors will open. Folks will give you stuff and treat you like royalty. And who doesn't want that when you've got no money, no power, no, no standing and just with the gift of your little hands, you can create yourself, you know, into fame and 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 all of that. It, it fame doesn't go hand in hand in fortune. I mean, that comes later. Yeah. How long between when you first started? Do you remember hearing like kind of a buzz where people were recognizing like your name, your tag, your style? I don't have those particular memories of what happened exactly forty years ago in those. I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. Um, was there a certain level of, like, I need to keep anonymous? Like, there, there's there's Sandy and then there's Lady Pink? Mm, not really. No? It was pretty hard to keep, to keep that, you know, separate. Everyone knew who I was. Okay. Yeah, no, because I was just wondering, like, obviously this was, it's illegal, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering sort of... Okay, that there was a difference in laws way back then. Mm. You had to be caught red-handed oh, okay. in, in order to be to be to be charged with a crime of graffiti. So you literally had to be caught in the act. You know, uh, cop okay. in the train yard with you, grabs you. Then you've got no excuse. Otherwise, like you can I can call her Lady Pink or anybody Lady Pink and there's no proof of that. Right. And the same thing goes for anything else. It's you you have to prove that this person did said crime. You know, um, so you would need someone to rat you out, mm. someone to confess, or you confess yourself, or is there an existing photo or video of you doing said crime? It is incredibly difficult to prove that so-and-so, so-and-so did some crime that is just in some tunnel on a train or something like that. You you need, like, concrete proof of that. So it, it's, it became very much harder. Let's say in some countries in Europe and in other places of the world, it doesn't take that much proof. You can just get some 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 person who's got, you know, something against you and just to finger you and say, yes, that's him, that's the guy. And before you know it, cops are raiding your house, taking you away, and, and the burden of proof is, is on you to prove that you aren't who they say that you are and wow. such. So there's been all kinds of issues regarding that. So I could go run around and say I'm Lady Pink and you can't charge me with anything. Right. You know, you see something in a train. Oh, I have a lot of fans. Somebody did that for me. 
I how see. Can, how can you prove that, that it was me unless my fingerprints are literally on that train or on, on all the spray cans that are literally on, on the ground, which I would never do. Yeah. So did you ever get caught by the cops? Nope. Oh, that's pretty good then. <laughs> no. Been in some gnarly raids and had to run and be chased and all of that, but never been caught. Wow. When when was there like the big crackdown? Because if you, you know, look at video of that era, the, the trains were really tagged up. And was that like Giuliani who did? No, it was Cap. Uh. It wasn't Giuliani at all. It wasn't the mayors. It wasn't the outside external forces. It was internal forces. It was... Um, how would you say the infamous wanting to be who who were jealous of everyone else and they couldn't and they couldn't do quality work so they would just destroy quality work. Someone mm. who spent all night doing a whole car, this guy would come along and just do his scribble cap little bubbly throw ups that take seconds to do over a masterpiece, and then everyone is talking about him because he's a bad guy. Mm. And then he had a sort of shotgun and went around shooting people. So the, the, the game changed. It was no longer just fun and games. It became pretty ugly. It became violent. This guy was running around and shot a, my, my friend's house full of holes. Uh, he lived on, on, on a proper, you know, a residence in the Bronx. His mother was inside, you know, in a lovely neighborhood. And this guy has to come around with a shotgun and start shooting the house and stuff. And, oh. and, and that's just one incident. But it became ugly. It became real. My friend had to, like, move out of New York City away from everything. So life-changing events, you know, like that. I, I put together, I curated an exhibit at the high school. Um, I pulled together like 20 or more of my best artists, graffiti artists, and we put together an exhibit because I'd already been in a lot of exhibits, so I knew how to do this. And um, that afternoon, that guy and, and another friend of his, so Cap and P-Jerk, came down and shot my school full of holes. Midtown Manhattan, 57th Street, 2nd Avenue. Wow. In the city. Three in the afternoon. So I hear that my exhibit's on the six o'clock news. And then it's all for the wrong reasons. I'm like, oh, no, my exhibit. Oh, no, no, no. There's been a shooting. Oh, no. Some kid got shot in the back. He didn't die. But they closed my show down and I was thrown out of school. So, you know, life-changing events and stuff like that. And the, the game changed uh, severely again. So this guy destroyed everyone's work, and no one was man enough to stand up to this punk with a shotgun. And uh, understandably, I guess he he who put him up to this? Like him. The, he's an idiot. Cap. His name is Cap. C A P. He's an idiot. And so, like, was he affiliated with the police or? No, he's another graffiti writer. Yeah, an NPC crew. A bunch of idiot white boys from the Bronx, I believe they are. Whoa. Yes, yes, they were. Uh, I'm. Uh, anyway, it's, it's in that, it's, um, there's this lovely documentary called Style Wars made by Henry Chalfant and Tony Silver back in the early 80s, um, sponsored by PBS. So it's, a, it's an awesome documentary. And Cap is at the very end of it, too. Okay, we'll link um, to that. Big, That's cool. ugly ass white boy. And they have me asking him in some of the extras, they have me asking Cap questions. Why do you go over everyone? Why do you destroy all that work? I'm asking him something like that. And I remember is clearly they pushed me forward to question this guy because everyone was scared of him. Wow. And he apparently has some weird thing that he respected girls and he wouldn't hit a girl. 
So it was me who had to question him. But he would shoot up to school there. <laughs> yes, he would. And everyone was scared of him. But I was the only one brave enough to step forward to him and ask him straight up, you know, quietly, why do you go over one? Why do you destroy everybody's work? And and then and he he answered something horrible. And he's just a, a, a waste of humanity. So it was more internal strife. And then no one wanted to do anything nice on the trains anymore. Why spend all night long, risk your life painting in pitch blackness, freezing cold with rats running around your feet and all of that to paint something beautiful for those, you know, working stiffs who take the train in the morning. They look so depressed and you're just trying to do a little bit of color to brighten up their spirits and their lives. And then now this knucklehead comes along with a sort of shotgun and wants to destroy everyone's work before the paint is even wet. He's lurking in the shadows waiting for you to finish your amazing masterpiece. Took you all night long and dozens and dozens of cans of spray paint that you had to steal yourself. It's not easy putting this together, sneaking into the train yard, spending all night long there, and then this guy would come along and destroy it. I mean, do I need to say more? So is that part of the reason why there would be like collectives and crews because it's safer going with multiple people than going solo? No, the crews were born early in, in the 70s when New York City was in dire straits, was out of money, was every, there was a lot of crime everywhere. There was a lot of, you know, it, it was in, in, in pretty much bad straits. The Bronx was half destroyed, looked mm-hmm. like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, that the buildings were completely leveled. And, and out of that, that ashes was born in this, all this energy and grassroots creativity with the, with rapping and breakdancing and graffiti. All of these are grassroots movements by people not, not schooled in, in their field. They didn't go to school, to university or get a degree in any of these things. People were just inventing stuff. And it is one of the very few American art inventions since jazz way back in the 1920s that, that people this has been invented. And graffiti was invented by teenagers, ages 13, 14, 15 years old, with no more ulterior motives than going out, having some adventures, kicks and giggles with their friends and being cool. Because, you know, nothing, nothing is more cool than a young, handsome outlaw for the girls. Ooh! <laughs> without doing something real ugly like lifting a car or mugging people or something like that it's just a little art just a little paint like a little paint pirate it's so sexy <laughs> something that fascinates me is that you were doing this in high school while i'm assuming simultaneously taking art classes in high school Yes, I was attend. I was going to the High School of Art and Design, and um, I was majoring in architecture. But I wasn't really going to class. I never went to class. I cut. I cut all the time. My 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 school day it started at noon when I went in. I had four periods of lunch, and then one period of ladies' room, <laughs> and then I call that a school day. So I was never going to class. My teachers barely knew me. Okay. I wasn't really getting along. They were failing me. Teachers were failing me because they were jealous that I was in galleries that they could never get their foot in the door. That's what I was going to ask so about. So I was getting backlash from from the teachers about that. I mean, I, I admit I probably had a lot of attitude as well, but the teachers were literally failing me so that I had four art failures, four classes of art failure that I had to make up on Saturday school at, at School of Visual Arts. Uh-huh. I would have had to go to Saturday school for four years to try to make up those art classes that I failed miserably. So it, it, art school wasn't doing too much for me. 
Um, and at the age of 21, I had a solo exhibit at Moore College of Art in Philadelphia, and they gave me a scholarship to go there. So I gave it a whirl. I went to college for like a semester, half a semester, my bad, half a semester. And then even that, I didn't even make it to the last week of, of college. I, I came back home. Um, I had an apartment, a girlfriend in New York City. I, I had a life. I had exhibits. And I had the same dilemmas that I had had in high school. It was like spend all my time doing uh, uh, paintings for important gallery shows rather than homework for school. So while I was in college, I had the choice of doing like a painting for the Whitney Biannual or do, you know, homework for school. Yeah. So, it, it you know, real life was conflicting. I had my priorities. So I didn't really need to go to art school and learn anything more from that. There's a difference in in some of the things you can learn in art school. Sure, for architecture, fashion designing and other things, go to school. For fine art, school can kind of destroy your, your personal style that you started off with, your original pure style. By the time you come out of art school, you'll be painting like all the other students and your teacher as well. And that is and and that is destructive to your original style. So by the time you come out of school, you'll already be too old. Galleries, museums, all of these folks—they're looking for the next young best thing when they're fresh and 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 just you know have a lot of originality than than some old rehash thing that comes out of university. I'm sorry, it's just it's not as it's not as interesting. So you know, school can teach you some techniques and how to use different mediums and stuff like that, but don't let it mess. Up your original style because that is that it takes I've heard from um teachers that not my own teachers but teachers that I've known out in the real world that it takes 10 years to get rid of what art school does to you wow so just don't even don't even well and, and mess like, with that. like you mentioned this was a revolutionary art form so what would they necessarily even know about it if it was new and it was coming from youth unless they had been one of those youth that were part of it um, it, it was always very difficult for grown-ups to understand things yeah. that they are new and innovative. And, and it certainly wasn't our place to tell them so, that this mm. is art or anything like that. And it still isn't up to the artist to dictate what is what. It is up to the historians and the academics and the, and the institutions like museums and such to, to, to determine that this is modern art. This is contemporary art. And we are that. It isn't for me to say that. What was your, your parents' reaction? Well, as any parents, they were terrified and horrified that I'd sneak out in the middle of the night and go painting with a bunch of young men in the worst neighborhoods of New York City. I was very small and very precocious and just nothing was stopping me. I'd climb out the window and off I went. Um, they were horrified, but then they supported me when they had to drive my paintings to gallery shows and they would come to openings and support me the whole way. And my stepdad would strap those big paintings to the top of the car and tie them down with rope and take them to another gallery or something. And they were fully supportive. When did that shift happen or, or even if it was a shift? And I'm sort of using the context of the film to where it, it, it was kind of alluding to it earlier, but... This is street art. This is guerrilla art. This is in some ways almost like a, a, a protest to, to other forms of art that were taking place. But then it seems like there was a shift from people's mindset of like, well, this is something uh, illegal or like some people will even say like it's ugly because they don't understand it to like all of a sudden there's like galleries that want it and people want to purchase it instead of 
washing it away. Do you recall like when that shift happened? Sure, absolutely. There was an exhibit in 1973 at the Razor Gallery by some of the early guys who originated graffiti. Graffiti started in New York City around 68, 69. By the early 70s, it was on the subways. Uh, it was very simple, one color, maybe two colors, there are people's names, and slowly it got more elaborate. But by 73, some of those early guys had an exhibit at the Razor Gallery, which was great. It never went anywhere. They didn't have any additional exhibits or anything like that. There were a kind of a cohesive group in the beginning there, those old guys, and they're still friends and together. Some of them are still together today. But the actual show happened, the, the breakthrough happened at the fa at Fashion Moda, and that's in the South Bronx, and it was December of 1980. That was the very first show, and there was like over a dozen of the best guys, the elite, the best of the best, the guys who would come out of the 1970s with those whole cars, and they were kings and legends to us all. And I was just thrilled to meet them. And they invited me to be in their first exhibit as the token female. Wow. I was still in high school, like Crash, who was the curator, Crash, and still a friend today. He came down to the high school to get me. Um, and wow. I hadn't even barely done any trains yet. I was still an amateur doing graffiti. I could do it well on paper and in books and all of that, but that doesn't translate to, you know, putting it up on a, on a train or a wall and, and stuff. That was... I had barely done that, so I get invited to the first exhibit. And that, that one exhibit led to another exhibit at PS1 at the New Museum and, and just galleries all over the world requesting work, and it, and it was off. It wasn't for us to dictate, but, you know, wealthy people felt that they wanted to be rubbing shoulders with, with you know, notorious um, uh, criminals or, mm -hmm. or, or what have you, and they saw the value in the work. And, uh, but even initially, there was also... Um, what you call it, uh, uh, Keith Haring, there was Basquiat, there was uh, a lot of the other street artists like uh, Richard Hamilton, John Fechner, and, and, and you know, uh, Jenny Holzer, Mark Nuang. There was a whole range of different, these guys worked in different mediums. Mm. They weren't doing graffiti, they were doing stencils and posters and, and splats of bucket paint and things like that. These were the original street artists. And Keith Haring, as you all know, was doing chalk stuff, yeah. never never spray paint, never any never anything permanent. And then there was the graffiti artists. We, we, we hit trains, we worked with fonts, stylized letters and spray paint. And that was that was our thing. So all of that became hip. And, and, and just very fashionable and it went above ground and it was just kind of thrilling, a great mixture of wealthy people, you know, investing in all of this artwork and they were seeing the value of it very quickly, value started to go up. And when there's money involved, you know, people pay attention. So we were riding the bandwagon in the beginning to see where it would go. Figure this is just a fad, let's just cash in while we can. And then before the bottom falls out and then, you know, and then the art world moves on to the next fashionable thing. It's very fickle. It's, un it's unpredictable. You never know what's going to be the next fashionable thing or the greatest rage or whatever the hell. Who knows? So we were just, you know, there for the ride. Yeah. How... how how shortly after you did that gallery, or maybe more, uh, the question maybe more is, how did you get identified for uh, the Wild Style film? Um, again, we were all hanging, chilling. Charlie Ahern, the director, was just a friend. He was, you know, building this film around things that he, he met and saw. And he saw the breakdancers for the first time at a party that I threw for Lee. 
and and he included them in the film. He'd seen the the rappers, he saw the graffiti writers, he saw the love story between me and mm. me and drew and wrote that into the film. So that was an actual love story between, like they said, the queen and king of graffiti. And so, you know, Charlie Ahern is still a dear friend today. So it was he was just a friend. We didn't take it seriously. If we would have known how how important it was going to be, we probably would have taken it more seriously. We would have maybe had wardrobe or acting coaches or makeup or uh, something, but it was a super low budget. But yeah. it was an incredible whirlwind of activity going on. Nobody was paying that much attention. They didn't think that was going to take off the ground. It was so low budget. There was, there was documentaries and books and films and we're traveling all over the world and there's concerts and, you know, stuff going on so much that, you know, you, you never know what's going to be big or what's not. You know, that was just one film of many. So, but it was really one of the first. It, it was one of the first films. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it that, that probably coined the phrase hip hop and put together those elements that are now considered all of hip hop. But you know, I'm not so sure. It's interesting though. Like I watched it this morning, and it's it's interesting watching it with the context of today. In that, like in the film, there's a source of like neighborhood pride of pride in being black and pride of being in the arts. Um, you know, I wasn't there at the time, but right away, was it such a success? Like it's, it feels like there's like a, a cult following still today where people look at it like, oh, this is a classic. But did that... When it, when it was, the movie was released in, um, it was playing on 42nd Street where all the movies played wow. on Times Square for just maybe three weeks, but it, they extended it to nine weeks which was very cool. And so that was a sign that your folks were digging it. People were liking it because if you extend it from three weeks to, you know, nine weeks or something crazy like that, uh, it was, it's, it's definitely, you know, a keeper. I was wondering if, if your folks went to see the film in the theater. I took my mother to see the film. I took my mother to see the movie Wildstar. She doesn't really speak any English, but she does understand the word fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and that is that is all she understood out of the film because that's all we say. It was so embarrassing. Oh, no. So embarrassing. And then there's this big long kiss with Lee in that film, which I didn't really want my mom to see. That's also embarrassing, you know, because she knows us both in real life. And um, and it's a reason why I can't see that film. I haven't seen it in more than 20 years, maybe 30 you can't make me see, you can't make me watch that movie. I will go and help for an, a Q and A at the end of the movie, but you cannot make me sit and watch that horrible movie. Wow. I have nightmares. Are you kidding me? That was a real life lo- love love story. You know, I have I had nightmares about that guy for years. Are you kidding? Wow. Nope. nope. Okay, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, that's not it's not easy to watch that stuff. Yeah, big long wet kiss. Ew, ew. Gross. I'm still friends with him, though, to the, to today, and, you know, no. No. Okay, I'll, swi- I'll, I'll, I'll switch the subject so, then. You know, I, I think after his his first failed marriage, his, his first wife gave me an earful about how awful he was, and I was like, I know, girl, I know. <laughs> but you were so young at the time. Uh, yes, I was. Yeah. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, I had seen an interview that you did, and you alluded earlier to, you know, going around the world. You had tagged trains in Europe. I did. I took up with some European kids in the early 90s, and I did a few, just a few trains, just for kicks, while I was passing through some cities. So this is pre-internet. I'm assuming then, like, you know, they had come to New York City and seen it and were influenced by it. 
No, it was the magazines. There were like graffiti magazines that went around the world and okay. those, you know, were through the 80s and into the 90s or whatever. I'm not even sure when those magazines started and infiltrated. One of them was uh, TGI, something like that, IGT, something, Graffiti Times, what was it called? Anyway, the, the, it was the magazines. Everyone would print their photos of their of their, their deeds on magazines, and they'd go around the world, and then in Europe they were printing them too. So they gobbled them up, and then the first books went around the world, Spray Can Art, Subway Art, and those were published in the early 80s. And those went to Europe immediately, and they gobbled it up. So what became important for them, the European kids and folks around the world, was to come to New York, the mecca of graffiti, where it all originated, and try to get a subway train. Mm. So initially you have to identify other graffiti writers that can take you there. You can't just go wandering into some old train tunnel and train yard. You're liable to get hurt or arrested. So you need a guide, as as with any place that, that is, you know, dangerous, you need a guide. And um, and then when you can paint the subway train, you know, foreigners go back with photos of their of their deeds of a, of a completed subway train and they are crowned king <laughs> and they get major props from their home country and such. So it is a major achievement. So I had some kids that came by and wanted to paint trains, but I was no longer painting trains. I was just doing galleries, so I no longer knew the best spots or how to get in anymore. You have to know where the hole is or what fence to climb or, or you know, things like that. Then um, that's how I dug up my husband. I had to, you know, get his phone number and find him. I understood he was one of the last crazy people still painting subway trains, and this was by 93, and when subway trains had been completely cleaned off by 89. Mm. There were no more no more pieces on trains, no more graffiti. As soon as something appeared, it gets cleaned off. So everything was spotless and clean, and only some crazy people were still doing it, you know. Um, and, and this was one of them. So this was back in 93 when I met him, and we've been married since 94. Wow. It, it sounded like the, the organization and like the efficiency in Europe, it was really organized. Like they, they would go in, hit it and be done like much faster maybe than when you guys started in New York. Um, every place has a different time span where you can go in and, and, and paint something. In New York, it used to be all night long until they, until sunup and they start pulling the trains out for the morning rush. Mm. And then uh, by the time I met my husband and one of our first dates, we went and painted a subway train. He said, you have one hour, one hour <laughs> to, to be here. And we stayed an hour and a half and ended up having to run from the police, which, which was our first date. Um <laughs> And in Europe, the place where we went to, there was 20 minutes. They said 20 minutes. I was like, I can't do anything in 20 minutes. Are you kidding me? 20 minutes, that's impossible. You have to paint faster than you ever have in your life. But it depends on what country it is and what the laws are. These kids have to be super careful. And they're much more organized like a military troop than they, than we have ever been in, in just a loose group of rabble of anarchists. How do you control anarchists? Nobody listens to anybody. Who's the leader? I don't want to be the leader. I don't, apparently, they tell me I didn't listen to anybody. I just <laughs> could do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. <laughs> I, I was I was uncontrollable, they said, as a kid. But, um, you know, those European kids, they had it together much more. They had, they had to think ahead because the police are more, are more uh, uh, you know, uh, um, they're, they're very cruel and, and, and their laws are not as, as, as you know, 
towards, uh, I don't know how you would say it. They were they were going more our way than the police's way. But in, in Europe, it's not so easy. They can come raid your house. Anyone can finger you. They can take your stuff. They can, you know, it's it's, it's different countries. It's all very different. Yeah. Have you been to Portugal? No, I haven't been to Portugal. Okay. I was just really surprised by how much graffiti there is there. Like, literally everywhere. And But they've gone through a political revolution. Like, I think it was even upwards of, like, the, the 70s, um, where they had a, a fascist government. Um, but that was surprising. But... I was wondering, like, how much of what you were doing and, and, like, the people you ran with, how much of it was political? Uh, none of us was political. These are children. Mm. We're not even aware of what politics is. Mm. You know, 15, 16-year-olds, you're only aware of your own little world in your neighborhood. You know, you're not, a, you barely even know who the mayor is and you don't care who the president is and other countries are going through stuff. Nobody cares. Mm. These are children. We're only aware of just our own immediate world, you know? Yeah. So when you saw stuff that was more than that, and you do see some of that, uh, there's like a whole car by Lee called Stop the Bomb and such. Now, this he was already like, you know, 20, 21. He was already becoming aware of the world. And that's what happens when you leave high school and you're done with that. And you start to become aware of the world and you start reading the news and you, you know, you see it on TV and you pay attention. But when you're a kid, none of that is important. You don't care. <laughs> Barely know who the president is. It's irrelevant. So it was not calculated. It was not political. It was just our names. Mm. That was it. You could only do your name. Anything outside of that was was taboo. So by the time these guys, some of these guys got a little older, like Lee and someone do pieces like Stop the Bomb or there were other works, a few that said like, fuck the police. And some of these statements that were passionate and heartfelt that had to be said. But usually it was every man for themselves. We didn't work as teams. The European kids work as teams. Ah, okay. We work only for ourselves. You only did your name. And it was everyone side by side. No weak links. Everyone had to be do a strong piece so that the whole crew comes off together. So crews were invented in the 70s so that everyone would be safe because you couldn't roam the streets alone. You had to go in a small crew of people. There was lots of other girls before me that wrote graffiti, but they all rode around in small crews of three, four, five people. No more than that, because then you get too noisy. Then it becomes too noisy. You have to try to move like a ninja. And if you have too many people, it gets too noisy and uncontrollable. So small groups and you can move like shadows and, 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 and go about the city. The girls before you, they weren't tagging anymore when you started, right? No. By the time I started, most ladies had stopped. I mean, the shelf life of a graffiti writer is anywhere from two to five years before they grow up and have to move on with life, get okay. a job, go to school, things like that. You can't do the things you did as a teenager anymore. you got to hang that up by the time you grow up, you know? And you founded like a girls collective? No. You didn't found a girls crew? No. Oh. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. There oh. was a name called Ladies of the Arts. Yeah, exactly. And it was just girls in the high school that wrote, that did it, that did it on paper. Oh, but okay. not any of them had the nerve to go to the train yards except for Lady Hart. And that was my best friend, this African-American girl, who's still a dear friend today. She lives down south. Um, she was the only one that would go to the train yards. None of the other ladies would. It takes a whole different kind of courage to do it, you know, in the middle of the night in some crazy place yeah. under harsh conditions, you know, like that. So it's a very much manual labor. 
You have to be a, a bit of a tomboy to do it, climbing fences with a heavy bag of paint and, and you know, hiding underneath a bush in the rain for two hours. And these are the, the kind of stupid things that boys like to do and the games that they like to play, grubby and, and, and harsh cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. That stuff is fun, you know. Our girls didn't play those games because we don't like to get dirty and grubby and, and icky. We like to get dressed up like princesses and look pretty and nice. And I have two sisters who did that. Uh. And I was different. I had my own bedroom because I had weird friends and, <laughs> and odd activities that required sneaking out the window. Of course, one of my sisters really, really liked all my friends because they were damn cute. So she dated a few of them. That's for sure. And then that was that was fine. Like I said, it's just a, you know, great looking good-looking bunch of outlaws that, that all the girls like. So, um, you know, yeah, it was different. You need to be a particular kind of character, a little crazy, a little bit of a tomboy, a dash bit of art, artistic, you know, talent, um, um, a criminal streak. Not everyone has that or, or people have it to a different level. You know, maybe you'll do a little double parking, a little shoplifting or something, but you're not going to steal a car. Yeah. You, you know, different levels of, of, of criminal activities that you're willing to engage in. So, um, you know, we did trespassing, we did shoplifting, we did, you know, uh, lying to the police and, 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 and leading double lives. A lot of people had to be a criminal and, a, and an outlaw at night and a normal person in daytime and... And try not to let your family find out. But my family found out pretty early on what I was doing. So, and you would have to steal the paint. It it was it was um, the way to do things. It it was unseemly to pay for it, even, okay. if, even if you could. So I had a big bank account as a little kid. As a, as a kid, you know, I started selling paintings at sixteen. So I'd always had a big bank account since I was a teenager. I'd squander it on on an entourage and traveling and drugs and stuff like that, but never spray paint. That, that you had to steal. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody ever try to imitate your style? Not my style per se, no. No. Okay. It's, it's just not done. It's, it's disrespectful to copy someone's exact style. I've had young kids reproduce my work for like class assignments and homework and stuff to get to study an artist and then copy something they've done. And I've seen kids do, you know. Uh, butcher jobs with my work and then some really nice jobs, all kinds, but not, not straight out as in someone trying to be me, you know, even when that singer Pink came out, she did her first album cover with a spray painted word pink with the eye upside down. They had asked me to work on her first album cover. I said, oh, hell fucking no. So I was not having that. And then since she appeared, I had to use my full title, Lady Pink, so as not to be confused you folks think that I'm going to show up and belt a tune because I'm not. I think there's actually like a rapper from Mexico named Lady Pinks or something like that. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. No, no, no. Okay. Um, how much of the movement and the art form still exists today? In what sense? Well, it looks like all trains are cleaned up. Yeah. Um, it looks like a lot of, maybe there's been a bit of a revival with like the Black Lives Matter movement and that there's been a lot more murals going up, but it seems like maybe, I don't know if it's fair to say that like the spirit of what existed at that time is kind of gone. No. So it's still. Oh, it's alive and well on the freight trains. Ah, okay. The cargo trains, it goes from city to city now. The rivalries are from city to city and not borough to borough in New York. 
Okay. See, and that that you're not aware of. A lot of the cargo trains don't run through the middle of cities. They run through the edges and outskirts of the cities or, or through small towns and stuff like that. And people still do the same thing. And it's even on the internet, benching. You sit on the bench and you watch those trains go by and you read your friends' names. You know, so now they have cameras that are benching and you can log on and you can watch all the freight trains you want going by. And, oh, that's really and, interesting. And the rivalries are alive and well. And those those babies are twice the size of a subway car, the height. You got to bring ladders and rollers and sticks and paint them in a whole different way, not just spray paint, because those things are massive. So to do a whole car top to bottom on a freight train is a whole different animal. Yeah. Makes the subway cars look all tiny now. So, you know, um, graffiti is alive and well, and in different countries, it's alive and well. The spirit of rebellion lives on. You can't say that it's been stagnant or that it that it that, that it's been replaced by commercialization. There are people, the purists, who will never take a, a dollar for what they mm. do. They need to break the law. They need to be rebellious. They need to to you know get out some adrenaline and excitement. You can't get that in a daytime thing. Yeah, you know, sure, it's thrilling when people pound you on the back and give you lots of money and stuff like that. It's fun. It's exciting. It's nice. It's not the same thrill ride and joy ride that you get from like an extreme sport. And that's what it has become. So it isn't just kids who are doing it. There's people who are in their 50s and 60s who are still doing it because of the adrenaline rush, because of the joy ride of that. The same way you can't put like some cops or firemen behind a desk. These guys need the adrenaline rush. They need to feel alive. You can't put them behind a desk. You might as well shoot them because, you know, they need to get, get that excitement in the same way why some people feel the need to do those extreme sports. Why do people need to climb the bloody mountain? I don't know why. <laughs> because it's there for the sense of being uh, challenging yourself. What is it? You know, all kinds of motivations and reasons why people need to, to do that. And the same way for graffiti is still alive. Now, in some countries, they let it run on the trains, like in Italy or Rome or some places. It's cheaper to let it run on the trains than it is to clean the trains or or put security in the yards and such like that. So in different countries, it's alive and well. And there are many, many people who, who feel that they don't need to commercialize, to do commercialization or sell their work or take commissions or anything like that. They have full artistic control. They'd rather do it at night anonymously that gives them the freedom to express what Ever they feel with no backlash because when it's anonymous you don't have to hear back from nobody so if you've got to say something you know brutally harsh that nobody really wants to hear like I you know I remember some some German guy was ousting all these politicians and dudes who are responsible for making the chemicals that gassed all the Jews so they start putting their faces up on trains and their names and the names of the companies and all of this stuff. I believe that guy got exiled. Wow. <laughs> At least they didn't kill him. But, you know, sure, it can get to extremes like that. If you've got to say something, you know, that, that's got to be said, sure, anonymously is probably safer, you know. Um, but there's all sorts of motivations why though I, I believe the graffiti is still alive and well and very pure. Okay. Sorry to interject here. Have you ever been to Valparaiso in Chile? No, I haven't been to Chile. Okay. that So that city, I think, has embraced graffiti in a way where uh, the entire town is just painted. Okay, great. And 
yeah, and I, I think it, it's in such a positive way where while some of it is political and, and has a statement, uh, it's I remember like walking around and seeing graffiti artists in the daytime um, with their, their spray cans and, and making art. And uh, there was one graffiti artist who kind of like stuck his finger to his mouth to like shush, you know, that sort of action. So I know in a sense like he sh he knew he shouldn't have been there, but it's been embraced, I think, by the city. And it was so nice to see because I think, um, yeah, it was a way of expression. Um, but it was also, I think the town itself saw it as not a, not a way that their city is coming off, uh, or not uh, that graffiti is making their city ugly, right? As sometimes people claim graffiti is, you know, degrading a city. And they saw it as like, this is going to be the culture, what our city is known for. And, and it is. Now, mm -hmm. Vaporiso is just known as a, a really colorful city. Um, I, I feel there should be a distinction and, and to clarify what people think graffiti is. I mean, graffiti is uh, essentially, it, it is vandalism. It is done at night It is and it, and, and it is never really very pretty because it's done at night. Now, we had a little bit of time to standing still painting a subway car for many hours that we made them pretty. But in the street, normally you can't stand there and do a beautiful piece of art for many hours without being spotted and someone calling the cops on you. So the stuff that you do see in the daytime, um, a lot of it, most around the world, a lot of it is with permission. And therefore, you can stand there for many hours and paint whatever it is that you want. The difference between street art and a permission spot, we call them permission spots, is that no one is looking at your design, no one needs to approve your design, and no one is giving you money. So, you know, they don't have the right to look at a design. You're going to paint whatever you feel like painting. Most owners of buildings just request, don't do anything controversial, nothing crazy, nothing political or religious or nothing, because they have to live there. Their neighbors live there. Just do something pretty, do something nice, and where everyone's happy. So they are permission spots, but that doesn't make them street art, you know, nonetheless. I mean, a, 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 a commission mural, and, and I, this I do for a living as well, involves money, involves somebody else having a bit of artistic control, not just you. So they can request you to paint something stupid that you don't want to paint. Mm. You know, it, it, that's a commission mural. You have to do designs, get them approved by whoever's paying you. They might ask you to change things. You have to change things and then change them again and change them again until everyone is happy because they're paying you lots of money. And then it's no longer y your artistic vision anymore. It is their artistic vision or a collaboration of both or something, but it's not exactly, it's not street art anymore. This is a conventional mural. We've had, you know, murals for centuries and centuries, and, and this is the way they normally work. Now, what street art is different is that folks who don't necessarily have any kind of any artistic um, education with a little bit of paint, a good design, and some permission, will put up a mural outdoors just to beautify their own community or just to, you know, um, just for the sake of art, cre creating art for the sake of art. Mm. Let's just say that, you know, you, you know, you're not doing anything else. It's like recreational um, art painting. Um, people, some people go to the beach, they'll go to a picnic and they'll go to a movie or something like that. We choose to paint a wall and, you know, get a group of us together and we'll take out an entire block in New York City with something beautiful. So normal graffiti is just a lot of tagging, people getting up and saying, I, I was passing through here. Here I am. Look at me. And, and folks don't really like that because that does bring property values down. 
But when there's a little bit more done and when there's some permission or there's a city or a place like in Portugal, and I know in Sao Paulo, Brazil as well, mm. that it is perfectly okay to just walk up and down the street and paint whatever wall you want. And it's perfectly okay. They're not going to arrest you or anything. As a matter of fact, in Sao Paulo, they don't really like billboards or commercial art. You got to hire a street artist to put up your street sign, your sign for your shop or something. Oh, that's cool. It's, you know, it's different places in the world. They embrace it differently. Down in, in, in South America and in the uh, Latin American countries and in Asia, they love color on their buildings. In Africa, they love color on their buildings. But in Northern Europe, they like their buildings just solid brick or gray or brown or just white and they don't and anything with bright colors frightens them <laughs> like the the minorities are coming people of color mm. are infiltrating our neighborhoods and i have been screamed at this by like old white people when i start painting something they i've been screamed at that oh my god you're gonna call the drug dealers and the hookers and they're gonna start hanging out here and i'm like you know i should I probably should call my friends, the drug dealers and hookers, and tell them where they can hang out. Just get away from me. So, you know, folks can be really, really ugly about it. They like their walls plain. Anything with bright colors just reminds them of minorities, I'm afraid. Yeah, I feel like that was kind of a concerted effort by New York City, too, in getting rid of a lot of graffiti by, like, classifying it as something that was gang activity. Um, in New York City, they tried all kinds of ways to 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 you know um, remove graffiti or or classify it in such ways, and they failed and failed and failed. And so, when you have something painted on your building, uh, the city doesn't have the right to come over and 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 touch your building at all. You can sue the bill. You can sue the city if they come over and try to buff and erase something. They, oh. they don't have the right to be touching your walls at all. The, the, the building belongs to you, see? And and, and without without permission, the, the city is doing graffiti. Even if they think wow. they're coming over and buffing something, a solid color. And just because something has been, has been painted with spray paint, it isn't labeled graffiti. They tried that too. It's done in spray paint. Therefore, it must be graffiti. But if it's something, you know, if it's the Mona Lisa or something like that and it's still been spray painted, they were still trying to call it graffiti, which it isn't. So graffiti is only that when it's done without permission. But as soon as the owner gives you permission, then then it's it's just artwork. And then if you copyright it, and I'm going to stress this, if you copyright your work and it's only a one page form, doesn't cost very much at all to copyright your beautiful mural. And then not even the landlord can buff you. The city can't buff you, not without your permission. And you can sue them for $100,000, a million dollars for buffing your wall. No one can touch it without your permission. So Whoa. copyright your wall, protect it. No one can take photos and put out beach towels and lunch boxes and put it in their book without your permission. I mean, you already have these rights as an artist, but if you copyright it, you have even stronger rights and you can sue for a lot more money. Had that happened to you at all? Were people what, that you? I've had um, my work that's been copywritten um, messed with? Yes, I have. I've had to, you know, deal with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, there's even like a like a national, not national, but there's like a city graffiti cleanup day that we saw recently. Um, there's, but, there's always been that. Yeah. There's always kinds of some um, graffiti cleanup. 
Um, I, I was down with like my local community when I lived in Astoria, Queens, I lived there for 35 years. So I was good with all the community groups and local politicians. And there was even one that, that did the graffiti cleanup and stuff. And they would call me, call me up and I'd, I'd ask them, do you need me to put up some graffiti ahead of you? What is it that, that you're calling me about? This? <laughs> no, 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 not that. Uh, for for people maybe unfamiliar with New York, can you talk about uh, Five Points in Queens um, and mm-hmm. maybe the importance of that? Five Points is a legendary uh, building that uh, used to be in Long Island City in Queens, kind of right across the street from PS1. And PS1 is a branch of, of the Museum of Modern Art. So folks that would come to PS1 by busloads, tourists, they'd all go across the street and they'd roam around four sides of this entire five-story building. Was Everything was painted up with the most beautiful murals everywhere. So people from all over the world would come there to flex their skills. Um, everyone was welcome. The director, Mears, would give everyone a spot, no matter what your skill level or age was. If you were an old-timer, if you were from Europe and didn't know some, some place and didn't even speak the language, but you had photos of the amazing work that you did, Mears would give you a spot. If you were 10 years old and your daddy brought you over with two cans of spray paint, he'd give you a spot so where you can practice legally and do your thing. And at any given time on a weekend, you would find 20 or 30 people painting oh. from the ground level, up on the rooftops, up high, up on the, in the stairways. Everyone was painting. You'd have families there, mom and dad, giving it their all and their little kids on the floor playing with chalk and doodling and, and mom and dad are just kicking ass and doing <laughs> everything they could. And no one's paying anybody. There was no money exchange here. No artist ever got paid. You brought your own paint. All mirrors could possibly do. Because since there was no funding for the space at all, is some donated paint is they can buff a spot for you and loan you a ladder. And then you were on your own. You did your thing. And folks would spend their entire week there or vacation, you know, flexing their skills and coughing up a beautiful mural. They didn't want to go see Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, or any of the sites or shopping in New York City. They just wanted to come and paint it five points and eat cold pizza sitting on the sidewalk <laughs> and just leaving behind an amazing piece of, of mural that, that that will be, you know, legendary and be spoke about. And, and then this is just how people, you know, what people did. So um, Five Points um, was around for more than 20 years. It was knocked down about seven years ago, uh, destroyed by the owner. Um, he didn't give the artists permission to remove some of their work. So about 20 of us, um, 21 of us, we sued the oh. owner and the lawsuit was about, it took about seven years and and we won. It was about six years ago. I didn't but know then, that. But then the, uh, we won a, a total of of um, $7 million oh. to be split between um, 21 artists. And it was un, an unprecedented kind of uh, a ruling that, that said that street art and our work has value and we have value and, and we are bona fide artists and all of that. There was no more dispute trying to prove that we are legitimate artists in any way and the owner did wrong. And the man even died before the lawsuit was completely over. He sent it to the to the Supreme Court and just a few months ago, the Supreme Court was not hearing it. So um, they would, they, so they threw it back to the lower court and, and that stands. And the money had been sitting like an escrow account and a bank account all that time. And as soon as the, the, the courts said no more of that and the other money was released to the artist. So each artist 
it depended on how many pieces you had up there. Each piece was worth $150,000. And I only had one piece up there, so that's what I got. Other artists had more pieces, multiple pieces. I believe the director who busted his ass for more than 15 years, I think, more than 10 years for sure, never getting paid, working all the time and, and corralling all these artists and, and, and organizing this for years and never to be paid. He was, I believe, going to make like 1.3 million or something like that. That is life changing money. Yeah. He so deserved it. This guy, you know, really, really loved that place. And it had the best vibe. As in, like you heard me say earlier, they were, you know, the vibes had changed. People were like, you know, at each other's throats. And that's how the movement died. I'm afraid on the subway trains. But on Five Points, it all came, you know, in a kind of a community place. There was never any any, any kind of violence or any, any ugly vibes or anything. It was just always... Very, very chill. Like I said, people would bring their families there, their little kids to hang out all weekend long. I mean, the place was amazing. So I would bring, I would send artists there all the time to go paint. I would give them legal, you know, spots that they would, if they were just passing through town for a little bit, they'd get a spot on the, on, on, at five points. And when you go there and you see all the amazing work, it, it, it sets the bar high. You, you, you got to do something, you know, pretty brilliant. You can't just do some, if you do a little crappy thing, there was a, a, a back corner for kids who were amateurs and just wanted to try their little hand that little something something but the, it was a great place for the media to go we would send all kinds yeah. of everything from you know photographers and filmmakers and the news I would bring New York One down there all the time um, model shoots and film shoots and music videos and I think Mears once saw these two fat naked black chicks on the, on the staircase doing a, a porno Whoa. He threw them out. There had been weddings there, wedding photo shoots and all kinds. I've brought classes there. I you know, All sorts of amazing things at Five Points would happen. Um, such a beautiful place. But it had, it, you know, it, it, it had run its course. The building was in really bad shape and the owner wasn't going to spend millions bringing it up to code. I believe it had like 80 studio apartments and when and the city had to throw everyone out because the building was not up to code. It was dangerous to be in there. And he the man wasn't going to spend all that money. Um, instead, he wanted to just level the building and build. What he's done now is two high-rise buildings with like hundreds of apartments and, and retail space downstairs. And it's half a block from the subway yeah. and, you know, 10 minutes from Manhattan. I mean, it's a, it's a prime real estate spot, understandable. And um, the man loved art and supported us for over 20 years, but he loved money more. And, and art is dispensable and, and he didn't think us artists were of any value. So they buffed the building before it could be torn down. When a judge had told them not to give the artist some time to remove their work, though a lot of the stuff on the ground floor was just plywood screwed up there over the windows. You could, with a screwdriver, you could have taken your work home. But nope, this man had to be cruel about it and buff all those amazing murals. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Like I used to go see bands play at these lofts in Brooklyn and none of that was up to code. You know, these are lofts where you'd have 10 punk kids living in one space and that's it's everything is high rises now. Like everything is getting paved over. Um, I don't know. A lot of like the spirit, I think, of New York is turning into something different. We, we wonder all the time when we walk around, we're like, who's even living here and how are they affording it? Because there's so many high-rise apartments now. It's weird. 
I don't know. Um, we're at over an hour here, so okay. I want to say thanks again. Um, I want to send people in your direction to check out your art, to see what you're working on, to check out your website. So where can we send people? Um, my website is ladypinknyc.com, and my Instagram is ladypinknyc. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is a, a real uh, honor and a pleasure. So thanks. Well, thank you. Hey, everyone. That is a wrap on episode 226 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Many thanks to Lady Pink for having us come up to her house and for learning about her story, seeing her really, really cool studio. We were also dog sitting, so thanks for letting us bring the little pup with us. This was a cool one. All right, Voyagers, we got a lot more stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned. And as always, please take care of each other. I'll catch you very, very soon.